Welcome to Diversity Connects Us. This podcast highlights lived experiences and inspirational stories of strength and tenacity. We will share profound and courageous dialogues that influence diversity, equity, and inclusion by breaking the barriers and labels of stereotypes, confronting biases, and offering best practices to achieve a more significant, cultural, and emotionally intelligent mindset. In our last episode with Michelle and I, we had a courageous conversation about why white people have difficulty talking about race. Michelle is here again with us today as we further this courageous conversation on what Black Lives really means to Michelle. Michelle, thank you so much for coming It is absolutely my pleasure. Thank you, thank you, and thank you for having me. It's interesting. uh, Claude Johnson says something here. Thank you, Claude, for joining in. He says, just realize, too, that the label of racist was socialized into an unthinkable taboo precisely because that made it possible to separate those bad racists from everyone else, which had the effect of stopping any conversation about racism many households under the umbrella. Oh, under the umbrella of, meaning that's not us. Mm -hmm. So they separated it. So, and it's exactly what she says right here. You know, there's a quote that says, oh, it's focusing on race that divides us. So it's a division. Mm -hmm. You know, that's you and that's me. This is how I live and this is how you live. And this is you on the socioeconomic level. And this is me on the socioeconomic level. Oh, this is where I graduated. Well, this is where you, you see how the division happens when there's a separation in the language. Absolutely. One of the things that I find very interesting that I've had this discussion somewhat heated with um, some of my business partners is around the whole girl boss or woman entrepreneur or Native American entrepreneur or queer entrepreneur or any of the other titles that I can have. So this is one of the areas of gray that I find interesting is because we have this, this dilemma that we know representation matters. Right. We know that little girls need to see women scientists to know it's okay for girls to become scientists. We know with very few exceptions that the examples of Black people in television and in pop culture are athletes and musicians. And so those are the only two paths that we teach Black children that they have options moving up into. We know those things need to change, right? We know the importance of the Obamas to the community, right? We get that. And at the same time, calling somebody out as a woman entrepreneur as opposed to just an entrepreneur, right? Or a black president as opposed to the president. Right. You know, I haven't decided where I fall. So I'm. That's interesting. You said that. I think what happens is we're Haitian. I'm Haitian. And my parents grew up in a black nation. And when they moved, there were black presidents. I mean, we're not going to talk about politics, but (laughs) there were uh, black presidents, black vice presidents. It was normal. So they didn't have to say black. 
moving to the U.S. in the 60s, very tumultuous in Boston, went to an Ivy League school. They were a handful of Haitians going to Northeastern at the time. You know, KKK was huge. Their cars got burned. Professors professed that they would fail my parents. They were both on scholarships. I mean, the stories are, are endless. However, I think because when you're brought up in a nation where all of it is normal and in America, what has taught to be normal, like you mentioned, was the basketball player and the musician or rapper the black president for me is a huge thing since it's a role model for my daughter. Or actually, she wasn't even born at the time. She's only seven, but it's, it could still be a role model for my daughter because all the other role models were not. So that's from my perspective. And I think it's really important to start the other day, exactly what Madison said. I Google searched one of the first astronauts to travel to space and he was black, but it was on page 255 in Google. You know, if I type yoga <laughs> on YouTube, I need to be specific now and type black women yoga. So I can have my daughter see that there are other people outside of white people who are doing yoga. So there is, it's so filtered in very many ways, that saying the Black president is, oh my gosh, you know, my Black brothers, there's hope for you. Yeah. You see what I mean? There's your role model. This is yeah. a role model for you. But at the same time, you know, I also feel the whole idea that it feeds the... I don't know where the line is, honestly, Rochelle, because... I also hear the argument that it feeds into the implicit bias. Like at what point do women in business become just business people? Right. And at what point I absolutely call myself a girl boss. I absolutely call myself a female entrepreneur because I don't see enough women in business. And my right. argument is that when we are 60% of the boardroom, like we are 60% of this population, and when we close the pay gap, then I will take the title off because of exactly what you're saying. But for others, I have heard the argument that it diminishes it. And I'm like, oh, if we're still saying that being a female entrepreneur is diminished, then I definitely need to stand up and be a female entrepreneur. Correct. But also, at what point do we just say that I don't need a separate label? I am just an entrepreneur. And I don't know where that line is. I hope that I feel sooner than later that there is enough representation that it's not worthwhile adding the, the moniker. But for right now, I think that the representation part, like you're saying, is much more important. You know, when we get to a place where you Google yoga instructor and it's like, even split between all of the different yeah. races, right. great that we don't need to Google black yoga instructor. But until right. that day, it's important. Right. There's someone, a LinkedIn user who said, we can turn white guilt into white responsibility. Any ideas how to reframe this talking point? Around white guilt? I think that the problem with white guilt 
is that people guilt is a negative and nasty thing to carry around. Right. And so giving, so people often when they feel guilty, it makes them feel trapped. It makes them feel like they've done something wrong, which in turn leads to defensiveness and in turn leads to hostility. So Mm. that's when you push on that button, you get the, no, 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 no. I'm not racist. I'm one of the good guys. I'm an ally, right? That's where that comes from. So I think that what we need to do is remove the need for guilt. The only thing you need to be guilty of is the choices you make. If you choose to be a racist, if you choose to lean into the programming that you've been given, then you should really evaluate your choices. Right. And if you don't choose that, I didn't choose to be programmed to be racist. I didn't choose to be programmed that my job in life is domestic servitude, right? Like I didn't choose those things. I choose what I do with that. I choose how I engage with the hand that I've been dealt. And so I think that that's the reframing that we've seen people trying to make with the dialogue, right? That it's, we're talking about racism. We're talking about removing the needle to being anti-racist. It's not that I'm not a racist. It's that I am actively anti-racist. I am actively doing things to correct the programming that I acknowledge that I have and actively trying to correct the problems that I see in the culture around me. And I think that that's really what we have to focus on, that as long as we focus on this idea of guilt and we allow the guilt to continue to be there, that guilt is, like I said, it festers and it breeds this defensiveness, which breeds hostility. And then that's where we get the, well, it's not my fault. That's where we get this whole, well, it's not that it's an implicit bias. It's because statistically black people make all of the crimes, right? That That's what comes from that. Right. So we have to take that out. And then move the dialogue to being, okay, look, now what? (laughs) This is where we are. Right. Now what? Right. Malaika Simmons. Hi, Malaika. Thanks for always chiming in. She says, if we focus on letting people identify as they are comfortable and in ways that personally empower them, that's a start. I would agree. I think some of my concerns around that is that We have it. I think that it is important to remember that there is a different experience that some people have by things that is not about a chosen identity. Mm. That is about an identity that they didn't get to pick. Mm. Um, You did not get to choose. You just made me choke. (laughs) (laughs) You know, one of the things I have a good friend and you know, I'm a bit of a smart ass and my kids are, are taking after their mom. And we were talking about teasing. And one of my friends oh, was yeah. saying that what she has taught her kids, and I think this is so great, it is fine to tease somebody about anything they chose. What do you mean? It's anything that they choose, it's okay to make be funny, right? So, oh, he chose a banana over an orange. Ha um, ha, bananas are funny. Uh, it is not funny ever to tease somebody about something they didn't choose. Hmm. So his legs don't work the way that mine do. He didn't choose that. So we don't make fun of that. That's never funny to make fun of. Hmm. He looks different than me. He didn't choose that. 
Mm. We don't make fun of him about that. Right. And I think that, I think that that kind of a good rule for a lot of things, right? Like we have to acknowledge that, yes, there are things that we can choose. There are things that we can pick to identify with, but we also have to acknowledge that a bunch of other people have things in their life that they never chose that dramatically change their world experience and their lived experiences. That's right. That's right. It dramatically changes the way that everybody engages with them. And it was not a thing they ever picked. And that deserves a different discussion and a different voice. Right. And it's not fair. We've had a couple of examples of people claiming a black identity that were not right. The, mm. is the professor and, and you just think what, like they're trying to, you know, co-opt that experience for the mm. people and, and their response was exactly as well, but I identify you. This is not a thing you identify as, right? This is a thing that, you don't get to choose. Right. Do you understand what Black Lives Matter really means to the community? I love your mask. It says Black Lives Matter. And absolutely. I'm sorry. I said absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And Black Lives Matter for you is not. Actually, I'm going to let you answer that. I was going to dive a little bit deep, but what does it mean to you? You know, I remember at one point to put everything in perspective, everybody on Instagram was putting the black square and I personally didn't. I'm not someone who's a follower and I don't believe we're a trend and that it's a moment or a phase. So do you understand what black lives really means to the community? I think it would be ridiculous for me to say that I did entirely. That you did or didn't? That I do entirely. Right. I, I don't live that life, right? So right. one of one of my good friends that I were talking, and she's a former deputy mayor for Washington, D.C., and affluent, brilliant woman, well-educated, lives in the bougie part of D.C., and her kid was late coming home, walking home from school. And there were cop cars and she was terrified. Mm. And no, no, I cannot, I cannot identify with that terror as a mom. And to try to say that I can diminishes that experience. Right. No, my little, you know, pale skinned, blue eyed babies are going to absolutely look like every part of the patriarchy walking down the street, right? Even my oldest with his sparkly leggings and, you know, other things that he's going to have a hard time with, you know, but that experience that said that she would be terrified that somebody and rightfully so that something would have happened to her baby just because he was a black boy on the street that I absolutely will never understand. I can try to empathize. I can hear, I can absolutely, as a mother, I can get a sense, but I will never really know what it is to walk that path. And to try to say that I do is so grossly disrespectful that I could never do that. Right. The reason that I wear the Black Lives Matter mask in my picture, the reason that I think that that's important is because I want the minorities that I work with to know that 
this is a safe space and that I see you and that I value you. And it's an easy way to do that. And I also want the people that are not cool with that to just take their business somewhere else. Mm. I don't work with jerks. I say that all the time. So if your organization is not delighted to have a recruiter who engages with the entire candidate pool world with a Black Lives Matter mask, then I'm not the girl you're looking for. And I don't want to be. Right. I get people who are like, you're so unprofessional for you to lead with your politics. I was like, eh, sure. And if that's how you feel, you should not give me your business. Great. I think that it is absolutely my job to lead with that because I will tell you immediately, I don't put, I would never put a candidate into a role that I felt like they would be unsafe. Mm. And I don't just mean physically. Mm -hmm. I mean, from an overall treatment perspective. And so any organization, any hiring manager who has a problem with somebody wearing a Black Lives Matter mask, I would not feel safe putting a minority candidate in there. And I absolutely go out of my way to try to support and put forward minority candidates. So I'm out. (laughs) Right. And it, you know, I'm not sure what the correct word would be. I'm thinking solidarity or um, it's it's more of a boundary and you're vocal about it. I, I think that's what's imperative in this conversation is that you're vocal about it and it's not something you're hiding from. Do you think that's because of your lived experience with your mom? I think it's because of a lot of things. You know, I grew up in Texas, like surrounded by racist assholes. And so when you grow up in that and you watch it happening around you, you can either choose to get angry and determined to fix it, or you can sit down and be part of the problem. I'm a big believer that, you know, if four people sit down to dinner and three of them are Nazis, four people, four Nazis sat down to dinner. That, you know, if you, I'm just, you know, I, I don't, I call a duck a duck every single time, every single time. And I think that it is absolutely my job with the skin tone that I have to stand up for the people who don't get to have a voice in the room. Right. And I think that it's such a small thing to have the mask on my picture, but it manages to achieve a bunch of things (laughs) all at the same time. And I just think that my worry is always, I don't want people to think it's performative, but I also think that two seconds looking at my content and you would be disavowed of that concern (laughs) since I talk about it kind of a lot. But yeah, I think that I am honestly, I would love to see more people doing that. I worry so deeply that, Black Lives Matter is a fad in the same way that, you know, hashtag me too was like very in the moment. And now it's like, oh my God, that was so two years ago, right? Like we haven't fixed it. Like just because a couple of people, just because a couple of murderers went to jail does not mean that like we fixed the problem until the problem is fixed. It's not a fad. It's not so, you know, so however long ago. And I'm terrified that the social consciousness is going to move on to a different topic, (laughs) the new hashtag, and it's going to go back to being exactly the same. And it's going to go back to stop getting the press. And we're not actually going to make the change that is so desperately needed. Do you think the change needs to be legislative? Of course, part of it does. 
so much of it has to be right. Because people, we, mean, we, we talked about institutionalized. Yeah. And racism. so we need to have institutionalized anti-racism, right? We've had right. institutional racism for how many hundreds of years? The only way to fix it is with institutionalized anti-racism. And that looks like all kinds of things. Right. Um, and absolutely, absolutely. And it needs to be part of the answer. I have, yeah. And until right. it is, nothing is actually going to change. The statistics out there about what happens to even minorities uh, working in police forces, that it's within six months, they have the same, Black cops have the same response to a Black suspect that a white cop would. Within six months, their empathy is eroded and the acculturization into that toxic environment is that comprehensive. Like, that is terrifying. That's the Stockholm Syndrome. And that tells me that there is something more profound than we're going to fix with, you know, a well-intentioned training seminar. Right. And Patrick Carmichael says something here. He said, just considering, thank you, Patrick, for popping in. He said, just considering why it's so much easier to accept that there are issues with gender roles, which is what you, we were discussing in the home, that it is to accept that we have issues with racism. It's not as embarrassing to admit that we have been trained to do or behave a certain way based on gender. This coming from a very domesticated man who was raised by women to do all things as a person who desires to be thoughtful and responsive to social justice. It's very embarrassing to recognize I've been so naive about this. I think that, yeah, I mean, it is, it's embarrassing to me. I look back and I think about, you know, the things that I was brought up to think and say that like, oh, I don't see race. Everybody might as well be green to me because they're all the same. Like that was, those were things that I were taught that were good things to say. Now looking back, I'm just kind of horrified. Like, of course, right. Of course there are differences. Right. I just don't understand why we experience more shame around one set of bad behaviors right. than we do around another. Right. And I genuinely, like, I don't understand where that comes from. Like why I think about the things that people said and think and all of that around issues of sexuality or issues of gender around all of those things. And I consistently, it's the race issue that is where people have this like hard wall Right. And it's just, I think that I don't under, I I think it's mystifying personally. That is. He says, Deshaun Rose, he said, it's a sensitive but needed topic to say someone can't choose a racial identity, but society is so accepting about gender orientation. There's a contradiction there that needs to be addressed. Jacqueline, she says, love your answer, almost brought me to tears in response to the Black Lives Matter. Jean Lude, who was also on my show, he says, I really appreciate the honesty of your answer about Black Lives Matter. Patrick Mitchell, I follow the San Diego Reddit thread just so I never forget about how many racists call California home. You could be such an agent for change and it's really nice to encounter you. Yeah. How do you give others the confidence to speak up? Asking for a lot of friends. (laughs) Yeah. Malika Simmons, she says, I don't believe just the factor of choice indicates a protected status. 
it presupposes that I can't and would not have chosen a thing. There is nothing wrong with my blackness, whether I choose it or not. I don't need protection. Black is not a pathology. I feel the same about I don't see color as it assumes I get a pass for my color. If you don't see it, you are saying that you forgive me for it and I'm just like you. Hard pass. If you don't see color, then you don't truly see me. I totally agree. I totally agree. Right. And I think it's one of those things that, you know, I'm a Gen Xer and I think that either a Gen Xer or a geriatric millennial, depending on where you call the split, neither one of them is particularly, I think. We think of my generation as much more forward thinking and inclusive. And we, we tend to think, you know, oh yeah, you know, these are, a lot of these things are generational problems and very much of the boomer mentality. But I think that what Malika was saying is absolutely true. Like my generation was raised with this, like, I don't see color. She's exactly right. If I say that I don't see color, then I don't see you. And I don't see that you have a different experience than me. And I'm not embracing that right. in the same way. And I have, you know, friends in my life. I'm fortunate enough that I absolutely, I, I forget that we have a different experience. And so I'll say things like, hey, let's go get food at such and so. My friends will be like, um, that seems like a terrible idea. And I was like, why they have really good barbecue. And they're like, I don't know if you notice, but I'm black and that's a small Texas town. And maybe you go get the barbecue and bring it back here. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's fair. And it just, you know, things that my skin tone privilege just does not even put on my radar. And if you don't have a network of people who call you on that and help show that mirror to you so that you can see you absolutely, like you lose sight of it. And it's really easy to be in this cocoon of, I am so much better than the generations that came before me. I mean, that's a low bar, right? Like not, you don't get a gold star for not using the N word, right? right. You, there's a lot more right. than that to the whole thing. Right. Do you think that white fragility is how people perpetuate racism by being too fragile yeah. to openly absolutely, and honestly discuss the subject? Absolutely. Your fragility is what keeps you from moving forward. As soon right. as you get into that defensive place, as soon as you're of that mindset that you know, we can't talk about that, et cetera, then, then you already, you've already lost. Right. And you have to, you know, one of the things that I think a lot and say a lot is that, especially things like implicit bias, even people who acknowledge it, they think of it as a problem of the collective, never a problem of the individual. Right. So like when I work with hiring managers, like, oh yes, implicit bias is a thing. We really should educate the team. I'm like, I'm going to start with you because you have it. And they're always like, well, but a sputter. No, stop. We all have it. And it's so easy. We get into these habits of passing even people who are quote enlightened or allies, right? It becomes like, oh, but because I know that's a thing, then I don't have more work to do. Incorrect. Right. Because you know that's a thing. That's how you know you have a lot of work to do. Right. And when you stop knowing that, then you stop being an ally and you start becoming part of the problem. Right. What would you say? I know it's we've passed our time. We're going to close soon. But what would you say to anyone who said, I don't understand how my whiteness has shaped me? What would you tell them? I don't even know where to start with that, Rochelle. <laughs> 
Mm. I think that if you don't understand, then you need a, a bigger and more diverse set of friends. Because mm. I think that if you don't understand that your whiteness is a different experience, if you don't understand that that changes fundamentally the way that the American culture treats you, and then that's because you are only surrounded by other people who get treated the same way. Right. And so you live in an echo chamber of whiteness. Right. And so it is your job to go get educated, to go out there and put yourself in a position to see the reality for other people. Now, I'm not saying go up to the first brown person you say and say, hey, I'm looking for a brown friend. Do you win? Because that's also asinine, right? But like I am saying, Put yourself in a position to see what they see, to experience what they experience. And go get educated. If you are seeing that it does not in somehow color your experience of the world, then you live in a massive echo chamber and it is on you to fix it and nobody else can do it. Because I would never sign up a brown person to go straight into that echo chamber and be the token, right? Like, right. Nobody wants that job. So by all means, it's on you to go out and get the information and to fix it. Right. You know, many liberal people probably listening to this will be mortified to think that they're the problem. How do you think they should stop it? Well, start by opening your mouth more. So if calling it out, calling it out. Absolutely. You know, there's a thousand things you can do. I do things like, again, I live in Texas. If I see a person of color has been pulled over, I stop. I get my privileged ass out of my bougie SUV, walk over with my camera and say, is everything okay here? Not talking to the officer. Can I help you, friends? And I offer my privilege in a way like that. If I'm in a boardroom, I speak out. Hey, I call out just today. I had a meeting with one of my clients where I was like, I'm just going to say, we have a diverse candidate here and our process does not celebrate diverse people because of this, 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 and this. So before you reject this person for not wowing you, go check yourself, make sure that's what you want to do. And when we have the call next month about why your diversity numbers aren't where HR said they should be, I'm going to remind you of this. That's my job. That is every person with my skin tones job. Every single time. And if you're not doing that, if you're not standing up every single time and using your voice every single time, then you're the problem. Right. And do you think that will lead to permanent change? You think that's the thing that white people can do right now? Like you do, you said you're speaking out and you're raising your boys differently. Do you think that would begin to make more permanent change? I have to believe it does. Mm. The alternative is way too depressing. Mm. You know, I have to believe that that's the case. I have to believe that educating my little pale skin boys about race from age three and up and growing them in a visually diverse community of people is going to make a difference. Because if I don't, Rochelle, I mean, you're perpetuating it. Yeah. You'll be perpetuating it. Roy Love says, so true. We have to surround ourselves with people not like us. We can't see things that affect others if we are not around them. We must expand our bubbles. You know, we must keep having these uh, courageous conversations. 
Michelle, it's been a delight. We don't know where these conversations will take us about DEI and white fragility. We do know that we are here to help and share and speak out. This has been another epic moment and there are more to come. Michelle, it's been a pleasure and such a delight to have you. Thank you so much, Michelle. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. As we reach the top of the Diversity Connects Us Hour, I want to thank all of my listeners for tuning in. My name is Rochelle Carrier, and I'm a DEI personal consultant and EQ coach and authoress of two ebooks, Emotional Intelligence, a Toolkit for Managing Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, and Know Yourself to Know Your Employees. The link to purchase the ebooks are in the show notes. Also, be on the lookout for my and Dr. Rudell's coaching workshops, presentations, and webinars. I also want to thank my producer, Titan32. That's his tag name on Fiverr.com. He does our beautiful edits. To trend with us, hashtag diversity connects us.